welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. We continue in Luke 21. We've been going verse by verse through a prophecy of Jesus Christ about the times of the end. We come now to Luke 21 and verses 20 to 24. One of the great signs that Jesus gave that the ending of history will be approaching. In fact, this is a sign that occurs in the middle of the tribulation. And it's another thing that he told his followers in the future to be aware of and look to. Let us hear the word of God together. Jesus said, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are out in the country enter in. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. This is God's holy word. May he reveal its truth to us as we study it. Father, come, be present among us. Open up the plan of the ages. Help us understand the glory, but also the great events that are planned by your Holy Spirit. Help me to teach them rightly as I see them in the text. Speak to your church today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As I said, we return again to the study of, of an extended prophecy by Jesus. And you know, in Christian circles today, when I mention Jesus and prophecy, there are more than a few people that are a little surprised by that, that Jesus had anything to do with what is known today as Bible prophecy. Jesus and Bible prophecy. Um, there's been kind of a disconnect in our Christian thinking culture between Jesus and Bible prophecy, in the sense that Jesus was more of an ethical teacher, more of a moral instructor, more of a wisdom grantor, or uh, anything but one who was caught up in predicting the times of the end. But no, the Lord Jesus Christ and Bible prophecy are joined together, and we're in the middle of exploring uh, one of his greatest prophetic pronouncements about the future. So uh, yeah, Jesus and Bible prophecy, big surprise. They do go together. After all, he was a prophet, wasn't he? Yes, he was. Prophet, priest, and king, the three offices of our Savior, the Bible tells us, and he fills all of them. And when he was on earth in his earthly ministry, that's when he fulfilled the role of prophet more than any of those other roles the title prophet was used many times in the Gospels when people referred to Jesus. His listeners knew he spoke as a prophet. 
Multiple times in the Gospels, they called him a true prophet. In fact, there was the, the woman in, at the well in, in John chapter 4, after he revealed her past to her and had spoken to her with conviction, she said, oh, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. So those who heard him knew he spoke prophetically. And Jesus also called himself a prophet. In Mark chapter 6, when his teaching was being rejected in Nazareth, he said, a prophet is without honor in his home country. Remember that? So he took on the title. Moses predicted that Jesus, when he came, would speak as the great prophet in all of history. Moses, uh, the word of God said in the Old Testament that God would put his words in the mouth of Christ and that Jesus Christ would tell the people everything that God commanded him. So, uh, Jesus was the greatest prophet of all time. So one would expect him to teach as a prophet, not just as a wisdom bearer, yes, as the son of God, but he was a prophet and he spoke prophetically. Now what do prophets do in the Bible? They do two things. They speak for God. They speak forth truth that's revealed by God. And sometimes they speak not only truth that is revealed by God, but they speak truth about things before they are to happen. So they're, they're foretellers and they're foretellers, as the way you could put it. And Jesus did both. Every word he spoke was revelation from the throne room, inspired and, and guided into his mouth by the Father. So he spoke, spoke forth truth that people had never heard. And he said, every word I speak is truth. But there were times when he forespoke. He spoke about things that were going to happen as a prophet of the future. Now, that's a shock to some Christians who think that Bible prophecy is unimportant or unintelligible. That seems to be a lot of what goes on today when, when uh, people ask me what I'm preaching on, and they do, and I say, well, right now I'm in what's called the mini-apocalypse in Luke 21. I was with some people this last week from a different church, and they found out I was a pastor, and they asked me what I was preaching on. I said, did you know that there's a mini-apocalypse? There's the book of Revelation, but Luke 21 is known as the, one of the mini-apocalypses. It's, it's kind of a, a condensation in shorter language of all God's plans for the future from the first century all the, way, all, all the way through the last hours of human history. They were kind of surprised that, that I would get involved in Bible prophecy. And I said, Bible prophecy is not some little hobby horse that I ride because I'm particularly attracted to it. I teach it when the Bible teaches it. And here we are in the gospel, and we've gone for, through 20 chapters now, and this is the second time Jesus gives extensive teaching on his return. He told a whole set of parables about it in, in Luke chapter 16 and in, around that segment, and we talked all about that, and we talked about readying for his return because he taught a lot about it in the future. And now in Luke 21, this spans the, the, from the lifetime of the apostles who heard it all the way till the last moments of human history, the history of the nation. This is Jesus again talking about the future. So I made no apology to them. I said, no, I'm not some prophecy nut. I just teach what Jesus taught. And currently Jesus is going into great depth about prophecy because Jesus was a prophet. Here he gives a great prophecy. In fact, as I mentioned, as we got into this a few weeks ago, this is the, the longest answer to a question Jesus ever gave. This, this uh, teaching is actually amplified, and the fuller teaching is in Matthew 24 and Mark 13. 
It's known as the Olivet Discourse. It's a teaching that Jesus gave in an answer to the question that the disciples brought to him as they sat on the Mount of Olives in the last week of his ministry, contemplating all he had said and done. And they asked him what the sign would be of his coming and the end of the age. And so Jesus answers them. This is, did you know that this is the second longest teaching? When you take the whole teaching, not just here in Luke, but the longest version of it is Matthew chapter 24 and chapter 25, two extended chapters of teaching. It's the second longest piece of teaching he ever gave, second only to the Sermon on the Mount. So this was a big part of the prophetic ministry of Jesus. Teaching about the future was a large part of what Jesus set out to do. And it's ensconced here in the last week of his ministry as he's drawing truths together. So it's significant. You see, Jesus in his teaching ministry wasn't just about ethics he wasn't just about teaching about relationships. He wasn't just about bringing wisdom, as many people look at his teaching today. No, Jesus Christ was about even more than that. He wasn't even just about teaching about the majesty of his work on the cross. He was about the glory of God through the plan of God. God has a plan for the ages, a plan for his glory, a plan to bring all things into subjection to him again, and a plan to show forth his greatness throughout the universe. It's a great, glorious plan, and it involves people and nations, and it involves his kingdom. So Jesus was teaching about all of that in Luke 21. He's been telling us about that plan. Now, we've gone through it quite a bit in these last few weeks, and as I come back from my, my time away, I want to reorient you a little bit to the themes, and then we'll go and look at the next sign that Jesus talks about. But I want to do two things before I get into the text that I read you today. The first thing I want to talk about is I want to take a look at prophecy just to give you the understanding of what biblical prophecy is. A lot of people don't understand it. So let me ask the question, what is biblical prophecy as we take a look at prophecy? Well, it is not what some of its worst representatives today make it look like. I admit that when you talk about Bible prophecy today, you can fall into some pretty weird company. And, uh, it's something that people have taken license with. And ever since the internet was born, Wow, their licenses have really gone crazy. It's been nuts from date setters and all kinds of amateur people that have created podcasts and webcasts that, that take all kinds of assorted biblical texts and they build uh, strange predictions and theologies out of it. There are people today that take biblical prophecy and use it to create and justify conspiracy theories and ideas that are outlandish and off the wall and have no connection to the God of the Bible or his glorious plan. There's plenty of headline hunters out there that look at every headline, every development, every news flash, every human event, and seem to tie some obscure verse of scripture to that and make a new pronouncement that now we know more. Whether we're chasing blood moons or... Uh, the movement of Russian forces in the Ukraine. You, you, you can get it if you search long enough. By the way, don't search the internet for truth. Go into your Bible and ask God to reveal himself to you. Just a little hint. No, Bible prophecy is not what some of its worst examples may give people 
uh, cause to criticize, Bible prophecy is one thing. It's God's plan revealed ahead of time. You want a definition? There it is. It's God's plan revealed ahead of time. Remember, remember I said God has an overarching plan for the nations to demonstrate his glory, his saving glory in drawing forth the people for himself out of darkness, and also his reigning glory where he will rule all things for his glory. And that will go on forever. There's a rebel planet involved that needs to be dealt with. And God has a great plan for that. Now, God, being the author of history, is outside of history. And when he chooses to, he reveals ahead of time some of his plan. That's what prophecy is. Another author I read this week called Biblical Prophecy, History Written in Advance. And what has God done? At times, he has revealed it in the scripture through those he inspired to write it. So, Bible prophecy is a valid issue. It's a valid expression of God's revelation in his word. It's recorded right here in inspired scripture, and it can be understood by the faithful student of scripture. You've got you've to understand that and believe it. It's not for some arcane thinker. It's not out here, way out into the fringe of what you don't need to know about your Christian life. No, there is a lot of prophetic truth in the Bible. Now, I, I mentioned this when I began a few weeks ago, and I want to expand on it. The Bible is filled with prophetic material. About 28% of the entire Bible that you have, as I mentioned weeks ago, was prophetic when it was written. It talked about events in the future that had not occurred. In fact, the Bible, it's been said, contains approximately 1,000 prophetic statements. Of those, 500 have been fulfilled, and they've been fulfilled accurately and clearly. They can be proven. 500 remain yet to be fulfilled as they talk about the times of the end. Some of them are right here in the prophetic teaching of Jesus. So you cannot dismiss prophecy if it is that large a dimension of the inspired scripture. In the Old Testament, prophets were given truth about the nation of Israel and the future Messiah. Dozens and dozens and dozens of prophecies about Christ's birth, Christ's ministry, Christ's death, Christ's resurrection. Not only is the Old Testament filled with prophetic material about the first advent of Christ and the second coming of Christ and God's will for Israel and God's will for the nations and God's will for the kingdoms of this world and God's will for history, it's all there. The New Testament as well was written in part by prophets, whether it was John the Baptist or Jesus, the great prophet, or Paul or Peter or John. They all made prophecies in portions of their writings that have addressed from their perspectives events that would take place in both the near future and the far future. You cannot deny that about the word of God. And then, of course, there is the final book, the book of Revelation. In case you haven't noticed, that's prophetic. I believe it's 95% prophecy. And I believe in what's called a futurist interpretation of it. I believe the vast majority of what Revelation teaches, particularly from chapter 4 all the way through the end of the, end of the book, is all prophetic about events that are yet to come. So if that's all true, biblical prophecy has a role in Bible study. Because you see, it's the character of God to reveal what he wants to reveal about future things. The prophet Daniel in Daniel 2.28 said, There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. 
Daniel himself was a prophet and received many. We're going to touch on one of those in our time today. Now, people look at this and say, well, well, God knows what's going to take place. And so he kind of looks ahead and, and, and he tells us in advance, no, that's not exactly accurate. God not only knows what's going to take place, he actually causes those things to occur. So this is important. Biblical prophecy is not an educated guess by God. Just, well, just so you know. Now, we may be inaccurate or flawed in our understanding because we're limited people, but what God said in his word is inerrantly true, especially when it, when it comes to, to his prophecies about the future. We may err in our understanding, but God didn't err in his description because he's going to actually cause these things to occur in many different places in the scripture, particularly in the prophecies of Jesus. Jesus actually said, see, I am telling you this in advance. So those who are going through those events in future time would know and have comfort. In Scripture, God reveals his future plans. He's done it through those that wrote the book, and then he put it in so many books of the Bible. Let me put it this way. If you're inclined as a Christian to ignore prophecy, I propose to you that you're ignoring God, and you're ignoring his work and his word to a certain extent. I'm just going to be blunt. And so when we come to a section of Scripture, as we've now come to in our gospel study, that contains prophecy, this pastor is not shying away from teaching it to you and giving you my interpretation of what all these things mean. So prophecy should be a big part of a balanced believer's belief system. That's what I'm saying. So that's a look at prophecy. Second, let's get to something a little bit more, I don't know if you want to use the word controversial or not, but let's, ask, let's take a, a quick look at signs, signs in, in terms of how they relate to what God has told us is going to happen in the future. Because there's a lot of controversy today, because lots of people, lots of believers in our Christian conversation are identifying this as a sign or that as a sign, whether it's a blood moon or an eclipse or some movement of a nation in the world. These are signs and they're claiming that. What about signs? Are there signs is the question you might ask. And if they are signs, how do I discern what's a biblical sign and what's not? I mean, Pastor, I got to tell you, I get a lot of weird stuff sent to me by my sister every other week. She emails me some really weird stuff, whether it's about the blood moons or the Russians moving in Ukraine as a precursor to the great the, you know, battle between Gog and Magog, of Gog and Magog and all of that. And you know, it just seems every day something comes up and she thinks it's a sign. Well, again, I said that we're flawed people. A lot of our understandings of what we think we may see can fall short. There are a lot of people that are tempted to invent or imagine certain things out of their earnest desire to see the divine and or to believe that they know what may be coming or to comfort themselves with some sense of the sensational does that, you know, you kind of feel like you've you found a sliver of unrevealed truth. No, it's all revealed right here, and it has been for 2,000 years. So you got to be careful of that. On the other hand, I would tell you this, Jesus did believe in signs because when he was asked about them, he taught about them. And that's what our context here. Remember, in chapter uh, 21 here, this began, uh, this conversation began when they were speaking about him and 
And, uh, and they asked him what would be the sign of his coming. That, and and I, I told you Luke 21 is actually more expansively taught in Matthew 24. And if you go to Matthew 24 for a second, stick your finger in Luke 21, and you go to Matthew 24, you'll see that the, the whole conversation that provoked this teaching came in answer to a question in Matthew 24, verse 3, on the Mount of Olives that night. And the just before Jesus' ministry comes to a close, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, this is Matthew 24, 3, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And Jesus didn't say, ah, no, wait a minute, guys, dude, you've been on the internet again, haven't you? Haven't you, Simon Peter? I told you about that, especially you. No. Don't go into signs. Don't get off into speculation. Don't get into no. He didn't dismiss them. It look, look what verse 4 says. He answered them, and he began to teach them about what they could expect as the times came. So Jesus Christ didn't rebuke them or downplay the question. He gave them a full chapter's worth of what I would call signs. And, and essentially, he, de, he began a teaching of, of six signs, that really would stretch from their experience in the first century in their own lives all the way through the end of history at the end of the tribulation and his visible return. And these signs span that time from the beginning of their age to the close of the, the age of human time. So there were six signs, as I mentioned to you, in my opinion here as I study the passage, and they go from verse uh, 4 all the way through verse uh, 31. And then at verse 32, he follows with two parables that are lessons about how to respond to these signs and how to await the return of Jesus. There are two lessons uh, about that. And I'm looking at Matthew 21. Uh, Matthew 24, actually, the signs go in, in Luke from the first part of the chapter through verse 28, excuse me. And then at verse 29 of Luke 21, you got the lesson of the fig tree, and then another parable and description about watching themselves in verse 34. So six signs, two teachings about how to be ready for the return of Jesus. I, I appreciated what Gene mentioned in, in his response to the, the, the teaching or the scripture reading that I chose for today. I chose Hebrews 10, 20, 25, because just this week in my study, I, I began to think a little bit about the last phrase, and he was so keen to pick it up, I hadn't talked with him about it. Where the church was told in Hebrews, to not forsake your own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You ever thought about the fact that the Bible assumes here that believers who are scripturally taught will be able to see the day drawing near? It's right there. Somehow, Christians in every generation are going to be able to know that the day of Jesus' return is getting nearer. You see the day drawing near. And that's how you encourage each other, by the way. You encourage each other by, by, by saying, listen, as Jesus told us to expect certain things to happen, as we see those things happening, we can be sure that his return is getting closer He's coming back for his church, that wonderful rapture moment. I don't care about you. I'm rather excited about that. Unlike some of you, I hope I don't finish this message today. I hope I finish it in heaven. Because he could do that. That encourages me. 
I'm not afraid of the future. I'm looking to it. So signs, can they be abused? Can they be invented? Can they? Of course. But Jesus here answered a question about signs and he answered and he talked about things that were going to happen. Now, what did he tell them about the span of history? He basically had taught them all the time that he was with them. And now he kind of puts pieces into the final portions of the, the puzzle frame. He said, listen, I'm going to die. I'm going to be betrayed, tormented. I'm going to die for sins. I'm going to rise on the third day. Then I'm going to ascend to my father. Then I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And he's going to start something brand new called the church. It's a mighty thing that's going on. And then I'm going to build my church. How many times had he told them that? And as I build my church and call people out of darkness into my marvelous family, my kingdom of light, all around them, the kingdom of darkness is going to worsen. And the kingdom of man is going to worsen. And as it worsens, it will ripen itself for judgment. And as that time of judgment is approaching toward the end of the age, I'm going to come back from my church. John 14, 1, I'm going to come back and take you to be with me where I am. The rapture of the church, I'm going to come and take my beloved bride out of the judgment that's coming because I took the wrath for her. She's not destined for wrath. I'm going to take her out of that. And as the wrath is planned to fall on a rebellious world, I'm going to take my church invisibly to be with me. And then in a short time after that, the, the time of Jacob's trouble is going to start, the time of the tribulation, seven long, horrible years, which are going to be unlike anything the planet has ever experienced, where Revelation tells us the judgments of God are going to begin to be poured out in, in intensifying and horrifying succession. Even as that is happening, I'll be drawing people to myself, even in that dark time, and I'll be chastening Israel for their rejection of me, and I'll be tuning their hearts to be ready for my return. And just when it looks to be at its darkest point, and the armies of the world are gathered around Jerusalem to destroy my people and to destroy my name, I will come back visibly, and all the people in the world will see me. I'll come back, defeat my enemies, and I will judge all men and women, and I'll restore my kingdom. And we will go on into my kingdom and celebrate it on this earth, and then finally into the eternal state. I've taught you this now for the last six weeks. This is the story of the future. It's the story of the future. Now, for believers, it's a story that will be filled with persecution and difficulty, but rescue. For non-believers, simply growing darkness. That's part of what Jesus has taught here. He said it's going to be an increasingly dark future. And you will see more and more events happening that will be like birth pains. Remember, Luke 21 is not, is not the full story. If you go to Matthew's version in Matthew 24, verse 8, Jesus said all these things that I'm going to tell you about, increasing deception and apostasy, increasing human disasters, natural disasters, earthquakes, pestilence, wars, kingdoms rising against kingdoms, all of this, increased persecution of those that bear my name. He says all of this, Matthew 24, verse 8, look at this, all these are but the beginning of birth pains. We talked about this. Birth pains operate in, an in a succession of increasing severity, don't they? 
And Jesus used that description to say, the signs that I'm telling you about are going to increase in severity the closer you get to the end of history and to my eventual return. They're going to be increasingly severe until you get to the big event, just like in birth, right? What's the big event that all these signs are going to look forward to? Luke 21, verse 27 tells you. And that is, and it, it, is, it is all moving toward that great event in the future when the world will see, verse 27, the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. What's going to be the great conclusive event in human history? It's going to be the visible return of Jesus. And Jesus said, all these signs that I'm telling you about, you're going to see increasing over the centuries, and they're going to get into their greatest severity just before I visibly return. So what's the worst time in labor? Is it early labor or is it active labor? A lot of you ladies with glaring eyes are looking at me right now saying two things. What would you know? <laughs> and of course active labor. I don't remember anything about that except how intense it was. And then my son was born. Yeah, that's what Jesus is saying here. They're, they're like birth pains, and these events that I'm telling you about are going to be increasingly severe until the great moment. And the worst time will be the time of the tribulation. And I believe that these signs in Luke 21 that we've been studying intensify and get to that point. So we've talked about prophecy. We've talked about signs for a bit to give you some context now let's go to the third and, and, and just the signs so far. In Luke 21 now, I said there were six signs that I believe Jesus said you would see an increasing intensity and frequency in different dimensions until he returns visibly. We've gone through three of the six. The first ones, the first one we saw was in Luke 21 verses 8 and 9, and that's intense spiritual deception. False teachers and false teaching, false messiahs, spiritual deception that would begin in the age of the apostles and would intensify and become its most intense in the time of the tribulation when the greatest false teacher and false prophet of all time, the false, the false image of the Antichrist, would rule people's spiritual lives and he'd be, a, he'd be assisted by the greatest false prophet in world history. You can see the leveling up of that. Jesus said you're going to see spiritual deception from the beginning to the very end. The second sign we saw is that you'll also see, Jesus said in verse 10 of Luke 21, human and natural upheaval, nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes, famines, pestilences, all the rest. You see, you're going to see that in increasing frequency the closer to my return we get. And I gave you evidences from my point of view over the last few weeks that spiritual deception is at an all-time high in world experience right now, and it's only going to intensify. I think it's a sign that we're closer to the return of Jesus. And I also showed you about those natural and human upheavals among nations and in the experience of a planet that is quivering under the curse and that is slowly coming apart. And you're seeing all the natural disasters and dimensions of that, whether it's earthquakes or pandemics or anything else. And I would, I would challenge you to statistically prove that we're not in a time of those things as the world has never been before. So the birth pangs, intensifying, increasing. 
The third sign that we talked about last time I was with you is persecution. And Jesus goes through all of that in verse 12. Before all this, they'll lay their hands on you and persecute you. That persecution would begin in the life and the ministry of the apostles. It would intensify in the early church. It would manifest itself through all of church history. And finally, in the end, and Matthew 24 amplifies it, verse 17 says, you'll be hated by all. Matthew says, all nations for my name's sake. I think that's moving us into the time of the tribulation itself. When is persecution of the church, of of believers rather? The church will be gone through the rapture, but anybody that comes to name the name of Christ, whether Jew or Gentile in the tribulation, they're going to experience the worst persecution in history. And I think that's the only time when all nations will bear hatred against the name of Jesus. That's why I believe that, that speaks about the latter end of time. In fact, I believe that the language that Jesus uses here in verse 20 and the event he describes leaps fully into the time of the tribulation. Now we get to the fourth sign. Let's look at it. Sign four. What is the fourth sign that Jesus gave to show that his great return to take over planet Earth was closer? And it is this, the world against Jerusalem. The world against Jerusalem, verse 20, here now into our text. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. What is the fourth sign? The world gathering against Jerusalem to destroy it and to destroy Israel, just to destroy all who bear the name of Messiah that are Jewish, all they are in the, they're in the crosshairs of the world's antagonism and armies. So I believe that the, Jesus is shifting here. This, this, this whole chapter is filled with near, what I would call near-term fulfillments and long-term fulfillments. Near-fillments, far-fillments. That's my new language. I know it sounds strange. Many people believe, many good Bible scholars believe, that actually what Jesus is simply talking about here is... Uh, is the event that happened in A.D. 70 when Jerusalem was surrounded by one army, not armies, one army was the army of Titus, and it was destroyed, was devastated. People say that that, that must be it. And uh, there, there must be, this must be just predicting by Jesus of that event that was going to happen 40 years later. I disagree, and a lot of other Bible commentators do as well, for a number of reasons. In verse 22, Jesus says there's some very, 22 and 23, there's some very unique distinctions about Jerusalem being surrounded by armies. By the way, it's a valid question to say, Jerusalem surrounded by armies, a sign, yes. Which time when they're surrounded by armies? Because not only was A.D. 70 a time when they were surrounded by armies, but um, uh, they've been surrounded by our armies a whole bunch, wouldn't you say? Eric Klein is an historian. He wrote a book called Jerusalem Besieged, From Ancient Canaan to Modern Israel. He had this observation. In the last 4,000 years, there have, been, there have been at least 118 separate conflicts in and for Jerusalem. 118 different, different moments of war where somebody wanted to capture Jerusalem or destroy it. Whoa! 118 separate conflicts in and for Jerusalem during the last four millennia, he writes. Conflicts that range from local religious struggles to strategic military campaigns and and embraced everything in between. Jerusalem has been destroyed completely at least twice, besieged, get this, 23 times. 
in the last 4,000 years. Attacked an additional 52 times. Captured and recaptured 44 times. It's been the scene of 20 revolts and innumerable riots, has had at least five separate periods of violent terrorist attacks during the past century, and it's only changed hands completely peacefully twice in the past 4,000 years. But go back to that statement. It has been captured and recaptured 44 times and attacked 118 times. So it is a valid question. Okay, Jesus said, you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. The question would be when? Which time? Thank you. And some people will say, well, well we, we think it's obviously the, the time when it happened in A.D. 70 because Jesus did verbally predict that was going to happen. And I give you that. He predicted it three times in the Gospels as a judgment on the Jewish nation for rejecting the kingdom gospel that he brought and rejecting him as Messiah. And that did happen in A.D. 70 when the armies of Titus came and leveled the city and leveled the temple and not one stone was left on another just like Jesus had predicted. Is this just another rendition of that? I would say no for a number of reasons. You look at verse 22 and he says, this will all happen in what are known as the days of vengeance. That's a very specific time in history. In the Old Testament, you take a look at the phrase, the days of vengeance that is exclusively reserved for the tribulation time. It is exclusively reserved for what is called in the time of Jacob's trouble, a time when Israel would be being disciplined by God in the future as a way of bringing them back to himself, and they would be judged in a very severe way. This is about that time. Jesus gave a very specific identifier that you can trace through the Old Testament. Secondly, he said it'll be time, a time when everything, all that is written, will be fulfilled. That's a big statement. Because there's a ton of prophecy about the nation of Israel that's been written over a sweep of time in the Old Testament. And all of that will be fulfilled at this time in history when Jerusalem is besieged and then devastated. That doesn't fit A.D. 70. Doesn't fit it at all. A.D. 70 was kind of a dress rehearsal. No, this is about a different time and a different era in which there be, it's going to be besieged. I think the most important one is at the end of verse 23. He says, the last for women who are pregnant, and he talks about this terrible time when the city is invaded, and he just says, run. Then he says, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against his people. When in the Bible's description, is there great distress upon the whole earth. One time, the tribulation. That is a time yet future. So I look at this, and when you say, what time, which time out of 118 battles against Jerusalem, it will be that final time in the future. This is important. You see, you know, what's again, give me, give me that, that frame again about how things are go, going to go in prophetic future. Uh, this message series is entitled Jesus on the Last Days. When are the last days? Now. They started the moment uh, Jesus ascended and the church began. According to scripture, you can read about it in many different passages. They continue today. We're in the last days. It's known as the age of the church. And then the church will be raptured out. But the last days will continue all the way until Jesus visibly returns again. So how do you mark the last days in your metal timeline? The day that Jesus ascended and left, they began. The day that Jesus returns just as he left, 
the end. So we're in the last days. What are the different chapters in that story? Well, we're in what's now known as the church age when Jesus said, I'm going to ascend, I'm going to send my spirit, we're going to birth something called the church, and I'm going to be filling my church. I'm going to be drawing people myself out of darkness, and I shall build my church. That's happening right now. I know it's happening because you guys are sitting here. <laughs> Thank you very much. Preaching to an empty room is not a thrill. So no, you're the, the, I'm, I'm here with the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. I'm here with the church, and it's growing all over the world, even as we, as we speak together on this Lord's Day in every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Eventually, it will be harvested. The next great event in biblical history, I believe, for the church is the rapture that I've taught you about for so many years that we've proclaimed here, the rapture event, when he comes for his church and takes his church out just before judgment deservedly begins to fall on the planet and the tribulation starts. And that tribulation will run seven years. It'll be the last of Daniel's 70 weeks. So the rapture comes, the tribulation runs, and then finally at the very end of the tribulation that is climaxed by the nations surrounding Jerusalem under the leadership of the Antichrist, defeating Jerusalem, tormenting Israel, thinking they're on the edge of victory, and they'll be gathered in a great place called the Valley of Megiddo for a moment called the Great Battle of Armageddon when they are ready to finish off Israel and finish off their great plan to dominate the world and eliminate the name of the God of the Bible forever. And the Bible says at that great point, as those armies are gathered and the defiance is raised, who comes back? Jesus Christ, the great King, comes back. King of kings and Lord of lords, destroys every wannabe king and every God-defying Lord, and he sets foot on the Mount of Olives and begins to take his kingdom into place. So if you want the story, there's the story, and there are the chapters in the story. Now where does this fit? This fits in the chapter called the Tribulation, and in the second half of the Tribulation, which is known as the Great Tribulation. The tribulation is seven years. The first three and a half years are worsening judgments. And you can read about it in Revelation beginning at chapter 6 and moving forward. And the judgments of God begin to fall. And the miseries begin to grow. And Antichrist rises. But the last three and a half years are the worst part of it. When Antichrist's reign gets to its devilish, devilishly darkest. This is where Jerusalem comes under threat and the armies gather. So let me tell you some more about this time. Now, if you go to Matthew 24, again, he confirms what Luke says about this time. When Jerusalem falls this time, it'll be a very unique time. Luke, Matthew chapter 24. This is more detail on what we see in Luke 21. Look at verse 15. Matthew gives us more understanding about the full teaching of Jesus that night. Jesus also said about this surrounding of Jerusalem, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, 
Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who's on the housetop not go down to take what's in his house. And let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And, also, and alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. If that's familiar, that's language he's using to describe the surrounding of Jerusalem that's described by Luke in, in, in Luke 21. So you have the full story here, if you will. Further detail. What will be the time like when that final siege of Jerusalem happens? Verse 21, for then there will be what? Great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. So when is this great besieging of Jerusalem? Out of the hundreds of times it's been besieged, it will be in the last half of the tribulation known as the Great Tribulation. It's a time so intense, so full of the judgment of God, so full of human wickedness, so full of demonic outpouring, so full of massive suffering and catastrophe on the planet that the planet has never seen a time like it. And thank God, never it never will. After that, look at the next verse. And if those days had not been cut short, no human human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. In other words, this is a period of time that comes at the very end of human history. God's going to cut it short. In other words, it's at the end of the timeline, that story I just described to you. So when is, is the great besieging of Jerusalem that Luke talks about, that Jesus prophesied in the last half of the tribulation he says it in verse 21, the great tribulation. Now he gives some other detail here about how people who are alive at that time will be able to know that they're actually seeing it. There's going to be a sign within a sign. Look at verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand something. This scripture is going to be in the hands of people who are living in that part of the last days, who are alive and who believe in Jesus as Messiah in the great tribulation. They've placed faith in him. And they're in the midst of all hell breaking loose. And Jesus says, you can know that it's almost over if you see Jerusalem surrounded and you see a, spe a specific action taken. It's called the abomination of desolation. What is that all about? It's a moment in time when the Antichrist takes his stand in the temple as God. Now Daniel 9.27 prophesied this. Daniel 9.27, I'll simply read the verse. And he, referring to the Antichrist, shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. There's a lot there, but it's talking about the Antichrist who's going to come in the tribulation period. Tribulation period starts when the Antichrist rises and he signs a peace pact with Israel. He signs a covenant that, that he makes to protect them from the wrath of the nations and the anger of the world against her. He'll make a covenant or a pact with Israel and become her protector. If you are alive in the tribulation and you see that moment happening when the Antichrist makes this pact with Israel, that's when the tribulation clock starts. That's when the seven years start moving. 
Now, the first three and a half years, it will be a, a good political relationship between Israel. Israel will be in unbelief, by the way, totally uh, not believing in Messiah, totally not even believing in the God of their own scriptures, a very secularized nation. But it'll still, according to Zechariah, be the center of the world's anger. And it's going to be a victim nation. It's going to need protection. And so that it'll welcome this, com- this covenant with the Antichrist, and he will fulfill his bargain and keep the nations by by supernatural power from afflicting Israel. So for the first three and a half years, the covenant goes well. It goes so well that Israel actually rebuilds its temple again, according to Zechariah and Ezekiel. And a temple will once again sit in down in Jerusalem. And, and they will again have the sacrifices and the offerings of the Old Testament system And the priestly line will be put back in place. And Israel will be practicing Old Testament Judaism again. And that'll go for three and a half years until suddenly the Antichrist strides in in the middle of that and shuts down all of that worship of the God of the Bible and then steps up into the Holy of Holies and has an idol of himself placed right there on the altar in the temple and declares himself to be God. How do we know this to be true? Second Thessalonians tells us what this abomination is. Second Thessalonians, and it's chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Chapter 2, or verse 3 and 4, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come, Paul wrote, unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, the Antichrist, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. That's known as the abomination. Daniel said it would come. He said it would come in the middle of the final of Daniel's 70 weeks. Too hard to explain that, but basically in the middle of the tribulation period. And that would happen. As soon as Antichrist does that, he's going to become Israel's enemy. And then what's he going to do? All the nations he held in peace with Israel, he's going to turn against Israel. And for th- he's going to bring the armies around Jerusalem. And Luke 21, go back to your text now, will be fulfilled. Then he will surround Jerusalem with his armies, all the armies of the world that he commands. And its desolation will be complete. They're going to invade the city. Jesus said, the city's not going to survive. If you're there, run. If you're outside, don't go inside. Because, verse 24, all people in Jerusalem will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So the Antichrist is going to turn on Israel, gather all the nations of the world against her now instead of for her. He will take over Jerusalem. He will devastate it. He will defeat the Jewish people, and he will scatter them into the nations that he commands. And for the last three and a half years of the tribulation, it'll be the worst experience the people of Israel in world history have ever tasted, and that's saying something. They'll be persecuted. They'll be executed. They'll be scattered. They'll be trampled under the foot of the Gentiles. And finally, at the very end of that three and a half years, the Antichrist's lust to defeat the God of the Scriptures would be so great that he wants to finish Jerusalem off entirely. And he'll gather all the armies of the world into the plain of Megiddo, 60 miles long, called by strategists the greatest natural battlefield on the planet. And they will gather for one final strike to completely eliminate Jerusalem. And you know what? Zechariah the prophet predicted it. 
Zechariah 14, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord, 14.1, when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, the houses plundered. So they'll be on the edge of extermination. But look at what comes next. Verse 3, Zechariah 14, Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. When's that? Revelation 19, when he comes back, splits the skies visibly, all the nations of the earth see him. And he comes back as the king of kings. Verse 4, on that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem. And then what's going to happen? Messiah will defeat the enemies of Israel. Messiah will defeat Antichrist. Messiah will defeat the false prophet. And when Israel, those that are still alive, see that, they'll be struck with a spirit of repentance, Zechariah 12. And they'll say, he really was the Messiah. Now we see him. We mourn because we pierced him. But now we welcome him and we believe in him. And great revival will sweep through and every single Jew alive, according to Paul in Romans 11, will turn to Messiah. And Jesus will set up his kingdom on earth and Israel will be at the heart of it along with you and me ruling and reigning demonstrating his glory for a thousand years Jerusalem the, the, the capital of a, of a renewed earth and then finally we'll go into the eternal state with him and all things will be made new this is the story of the future and this is the story that Jesus told them in, in parts and portions so they could know and, and be aware of it. I love in, in Matthew 24, there's one little thing, you'll miss it if you do. He says in verse 25 of Matthew 24, See, I have told you beforehand. Does God want his people to go into the terrifying times of the future without knowing anything? No. He wants them to know these signs. He wants them to know this story. He wants them to know the chapters. And when they're in the worst of it, he wants them to know that it won't be long. Today, I believe we're in increasingly darkening days, my friend. I think we're in days that are leading toward the end of God's plan. I think we're in increasingly darkening days leading to the worst possible time. I think he's coming soon for his church to take us to be with him. And then I think judgment is going to begin to settle on this God-hating planet. I don't wish for it in one sense, but in another sense I do. And soon this world given unto itself is going to come under the thrall of the Antichrist, deceived by a false man of peace in the beginning. But even then the judgments are going to begin to fall according to Revelation's plan. And the deception that Jesus talked about is going to darken. And the natural and human disasters and wars are going to worsen. And the persecution is going to deepen. And evil is going to get to a point that we've never understood it before and then not stop even there. And the demonic realm is going to be poured out on the face of the earth. And the nations are going to come into conflicts. And judgments are going to fall from heaven itself in darkness and great moments of time. And the suffering of mankind will grow. And the anger of mankind to refuse to repent will grow. And so the judgment is going to have to intensify. But there are going to be believers in the midst of this who will be encouraged when Jesus said, See, I've told you beforehand. 
Don't be afraid. It won't last for long. And I will come and make it right. And Israel is going to be in the middle of it. You may disagree with me, but I call Israel the super sign. They are the key to how you understand all the prophetic teaching. And I just find it remarkable that Israel now exists again after 2,000 years of oblivion. Only nation to ever have that experience in world history. They're back. And they're in the middle of the fulcrum of the nations. They're hated by the nations. And all the things that Jesus said have to be in place for this to turn. And Zechariah and Ezekiel and Daniel prophesied are in place. He'll rescue and redeem Israel. And he'll restore his kingdom. It's coming. So... If prophecy, is, is prophecy unimportant to you? <laughs> the future revolves around it. Are signs irrelevant to you? The ones that he actually taught here, I'll tell you what, you may, you may dismiss the signs that Jesus taught, but they will not be irrelevant to the believers who are living during the Great Tribulation. That's why Jesus said, oh, these are written for you, so the reader will understand, I have told you, beforehand. They're going to know then that they're in the final hour, but according to Jesus in Luke 21, this is one of the final things that will happen. It won't be long before I come and take over the nations. These are the birth pains, but watch them and look for me. You say, how does this all relate to me? You've been talking about politics and nations and ancient history and wars and besiegements and tribulations and all of this stuff. How does this relate to me? Well, let me ask you this. How are you related to him? <laughs> That's the big question. If you're related to him, he's going to come for you. And you will not walk through the worst of this. If you're not related to him, you're betting all of your future all of you future on believing that God doesn't mean what he says and he's not, not going to do what he's going to do. I wouldn't take that bet.